Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show with Tamara Gondor. That is me. I'm super excited to dig into today's guest and today's interview and the insights and the wisdom. Before I do that, I just want to remind all of you of two things. One is, if you don't know your everyday innovator style, you are missing the opportunity to understand the foundation of how you perform at your peak, how you add value, how you innovate in uncertain times, but also how you build your personal brand, how you innovate. Is that critical information around how you present yourself to the world, how you communicate, what value you bring, what brand you want to have? So remember that, go take it. The second thing I want to remind you of is that we have that incredible online Everyday Innovators Toolbox that has all the inspiration, the exercises, the activities, the insights to help you bridge that knowing and doing gap and make that everyday innovator come to life. So if you haven't already, go to our website, make sure you understand who you are, and then get access to the tools so that you can put that into action. Now, speaking of action, let's get down to today's interview. Let me tell you a little bit about Evan's everyday innovator style, and then we're going to welcome him to the show. And as I'm telling you his style, I want you to be thinking about what I'm saying, kind of what resonates with you. Maybe this is a little bit about your style, or maybe it's about the people around you, and that'll help you understand how to bring it to life. So Evans is an inquisitive instinctual. So here's what that combination means. The inquisitive is all about digging deep, challenging assumptions, pushing back the layers of the onion. They're always asking and asking and asking, but it's in those questions that they actually innovate. And then the instinctual side, That is all about circuitous thinking and A to B to X, back over to A, over to Y. And instinctuals are really brilliant in innovating by finding the patterns, the insights inside the information. So they often think with their gut and they often feel their ideas and their decisions first before they back up into the rationale. So the magic in that combination of inquisitive instinctual is deep and connective innovation. And I know we're going to hear a lot of that today. So Evans. Welcome to the show. Tell the world who who you are and what you do. Thank you so much. Uh, My name is Evans Mayhew. I'm really passionate about innovative education. I think that we're reaching a point in society at large where we need to have some fundamental shifts in terms of how we view education and how we uh, how we take it in stride and keep those keep those initiatives in motion in our everyday lives to be to be lifelong learners, which I think. Part of uh, part of what Tamara was just saying that that ties into that is that's a key part of my DNA. It really is, always has been. Um, my background professionally uh, is is pretty eclectic. It's um, some might even say eccentric. Uh, so it goes into business analysis, some systems analysis work. Uh, did quite a bit of extensive work in global competitive intelligence, which then branched into R and D and invention. And uh, then I made a, an, an additional shift into cybersecurity. I was also a professor in graduate and undergra- undergraduate programs for 17 years, uh, taught across multiple disciplines, uh, including security, including intelligence, technology management, 
um, lead, leadership, organizational behavior, et cetera. So let me ask you this, Evans, because you have a really wide range of experience too. Yeah. Why do you think it is that it is so easy in some industries to innovate and so hard in others? And I think often in those ones that have a hard time innovating and, and really adapting to change are probably the ones that need it most or being pressured the most. And maybe it's because they're resisting it. I'm not sure. But why do you think in all the kind of experience you've had, it's easier for some than others? That's that's a very astute question. So I think that sometimes we can take it down to a little bit more of a granular level, as opposed to as opposed to an industry per se, but start to look at organizational culture. And I think that when you get into organizational cultures where they're a bit more fluid and they're a bit more adaptive and they're open to innovative ideas, I think then they're going to be in a better position to innovate because they're willing to take on new ideas and then to act upon them. Uh, other organizations, I get into the whole uh, the whole game theory notion of uh, are, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? So I think that you get stakeholders who are involved and they're playing not to lose and innovation represents a potential risk because to them it's like, well, that's off book from the rules that got me into the seat that I'm in. Ergo, if I start to try to innovate, it might, it might jeopardize where I am or where the company is. Um, that's that's just my general take when it comes to to innovation. It tends to it tends to go down to that level. What are your thoughts? Um, no, I'm I'm with you. And in fact, one thing that you said kind of really stuck out for me, which is playing to win versus playing to lose. And I think when I look at it both from the individual level or at the organizational level, because I think it does become a culture. Uh, the people who are better at adapting and innovating and navigating change and sometimes even harnessing it, I think are the ones that kind of what you said, play to win um, yes. versus playing not to lose. And I don't know that we always know we're playing not to lose. I think that's fear and fight, flight, or freeze and kind of our primal brain a lot of the times. Yes. Uh, but so I'm I, I was, the question I wanted to ask you back is, can you give, give me an example? And it can be hypothetical. I just, but I want to bring to life the difference between playing to win and playing to lose, because to me, that is such a powerful life lesson, regardless if you're an organization, a leader, or just like, I'm not sure what I'm doing with my life, but I want to do something big. Yeah. So I think that when you have organizations that, that lean into new things, so for example, uh, one of my clients, very large global uh, big data company, they looked at the curriculum that I built, which I'm sure I'll I'll touch on here in a minute. They looked at the curriculum that I built and they recognized it for what it is. But it's a very, very, it's a very, very, um, I guess you'd say strict challenge to traditional thinking in terms of how one or an organization can approach education. Um, in another walk of life, I also was, um, I was managing global competitive intelligence, had ops in 190 countries, but I tried to move that to where it was into more of a, into more of a, um, I guess you'd say, a, a strategic move in intellectual property, and so I ended up wearing two hats. One was the intelligence hat, and the other hat was in R and D. So managing an R and D team and looking at gaps that, through intelligence analysis, we could look at where we should be developing intellectual property patents and inventions, and then driving into that space. That being said that's only effective. So you, you can stack up a lot of patents 
and, and not do anything with them. And so to me, it's, it's a matter of, okay, if you're going to invest the time, invest the energy in the cycles and bring subject matter expertise to the table of a brilliant crew of people, um, and you get to the point where you have patents, okay, now what? Um, you know, really, really drive forward with that. And I think that sometimes, Tamara, it gets into, it gets into a cultural issue, which is, okay, now we have this innovative solution, now what? So um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, well, I just, I think it's interesting and it made me um, actually realize something in my own kind of personal life, funny enough, is because I just came off trying um, my first Ironman and I did not make it past the bike. Um, I got 80 miles into the bike ride and got timed out of the course, right? You had to hit a mile marker. Still, I, started, so I know I swam, I biked most of it. That's as far yeah. as I got, but, but I worked really hard. I mean, I'm proud of my effort, but one thing I, you just made me think about with playing to win versus not to lose is I was going for the markers to not get timed out. And part of me wonders upon reflection of, was I playing not to lose, right? Was I playing to hit my markers as my goals? And it, and it made me think, and I hope it makes everybody out there listening think whether you're talking about a personal level or an organizational level like Evans is talking about, are your milestones and your goals setting you up not to lose or setting you up to win? Like, how are you viewing those goals? And I think we could probably have a whole different podcast on that, but it's something that I want all of us to really be thinking about. Cause I was just thinking in my Ironman, I was, I was riding to, to hit that marker, right. To not get timed out, not get timed out. And then I did, I thought I made it, but I didn't. And I knew the rules. So I'm not upset. I'm not upset about it from like the organizational perspective, but maybe I was playing to not to lose. You know what I'm saying? Like that's a hard thing to admit on air, but, sure. but in, a, in your company, it's the same thing, right? Like are your goals goals that are like keeping you safe? Or are they goals that are really setting up to win? And that doesn't mean you'll always win, but it means that you really are going for it in the most, in the best way. Right. Absolutely. I think, I think there's so much value in, being and, and to do to hammer out once again an overused term, but to to be outside your comfort zone, so that's where that's where your muscle growth is really going to happen. That's where the evolution is going to happen, and then you need to move that marker a bit further out as soon as you start to become comfortable in that space. So it's not it's not just one and done. It's rinse and repeat. But if you if you're not uncomfortable, then you're really not pushing yourself. So I think if we set those goals and we're like, oh, okay, I can easily do this and it's, it's all comfy, um, you're probably not going to get a lot of evolution out of that. Right. And then when you miss them, you're like, how did that happen? But it's because you really weren't in the game, right? <laughs> so and the other, here's the other thing I'd say, Evans, about uncomfortable, because I'm glad you mentioned that. I know the phrase, get comfortable being uncomfortable, it might be one of the most cliche things out there, but I think there's some truth to it. And especially that, like, we just, I think it's the expectation of, a lack of comfort, meaning we have to know that's coming somewhere in the process. And I think if we know it and we're expecting it, it's okay, right? And with innovation in particular, when you're trying to do something new and different, you have yeah. to know things aren't going to work. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, but that's okay. But I think it's when you're not set up to experience that, that people pull out, they jump ship too soon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, goodness. Going way back to when I was still teaching at the university, um, this was 2012. And I came across an article in Fast Company that was talking about generation flux. And I tried to stay up on, you know, all the business rags and all the tech stuff so that I could 
have some pretty engaging conversations with my students. But this one was a game changer because it was talking about, not necessarily about an age demographic, but it was talking about a particular dynamic that was in the market, which was you had people who were doing like a four-year career is what they were calling it. Um, it really was more of a job. But um, they were going in, working in a, in a particular job or role, and the average at that point was 4.4 years. It has since fallen to 4.1 years. And so to me, the, the real takeaway there was, okay, what higher education needs to do is to take that into consideration, look at how people are changing, look at how the marketplace is changing, and then start to deal with that and teach people how to shift and how to shift with relevance. Didn't get traction in higher ed. I'm not surprised because it goes against a very, very ancient yeah, about tenure. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's when I ended up developing my own curriculum to teach those skills. And so it's um, when we when we start talking about innovation and I think fear and the the appetite to steer into something outside of our comfort zone and being comfortable being uncomfortable. Now with with, of course, the pandemic. And what I started to do was to teach people these skills to try to deal with the age of automation. And so this was pre-pandemic. And so it was, okay, look, you've got, you've got all this various automation technology and it's moving from just automating blue collar jobs to white collar jobs. And so it's like, we need to prepare to pivot to be able to work in that world where it's this constant, un uncomfortable, world where we're, we're having to shift and pivot and learn and adapt and be lifelong learners and apply that practically. Well, that was pre-pandemic. And so the pandemic has actually radically increased the adoption of automation. Elevated it. And so you talk about being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, being, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Um, we're there and things are about to get uh, even more so, I believe. So I'm totally going off on tangent, not getting to my questions yet that I had for you, but you said something that is so important and so interesting to me that I can't just brush over it. Okay. So I'm going to go back and ask you about it. And it, I'm reminded because, so I'm about to get on a plane this afternoon to go to a keynote for a, a company, a pretty large company. Um, I don't, we're going to keep them confidential, but let's just say it's a, a, most of the people that work there are definitely younger than me. Um, they're millennials and Gen Z, right? I guess Gen Z are in the world now, right? Depending on how you classify them, but uh, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm about to hit 50. Same. So uh, yeah, so it's, I, I grew up in a time where like you paid your dues, you kept quiet in a meeting. It's a whole different world, right? And I love it. I think it's, I think the fact that you have a stronger voice at an earlier age now is actually really great for all of us if we pay attention to it. Yes, absolutely. But, but what's interesting about it is you said, well, like the average career is 4.1 years, they're, the, the people that I'm speaking to and talking to about how to be innovators are going to be taking what I'm saying and using it for the rest of their lives because really at the end of the day, the company they're at now is probably not where they're going to be in five years, right? And that's okay. That's the world that we're in. Yes. And you said, so let me come bring it back around. You said how to shift with relevance. Yes. And one of the mistakes that I constantly see people make, and I know, I'm like I said, I'm pushing 50. I've been guilty of this before is, we think when we shift that we're walking away from everything we've done and starting anew, yeah. right? And I think that's a mistake. So oh. I'd love to hear your perspective on what shifting with relevance mean. I think this could be 
really important advice for all of us listening, because whether we're shifting jobs, careers, mindsets, life values, teams, whatever, we're shifting, right? We have to shift right now. No choice. 2022. But you're still you. Yes. And so it's, I, I am so tickled that you asked that question. In my, in my first course, it's called Remain Relevant. One of the things that I do is I share with everybody my working path all the way back to in Oklahoma. I, my first job was I was a janitor at the age of 14, had to get special permission so I could start to earn money to save a car. And so I did that. And then I worked in a grocery store. I've been a fry cook. I've worked in, I've worked as a professor. I've worked in a liquor store. I've done all kinds of different things. And what I try to do through a lot of these, these uh, reflective questions that I ask my students is to say, what have you done? And what have been the, the bolt-on takeaways from these experiences that have molded you into who you are? But a lot of people just aren't conscious of it. It's just they kind of just they just kind of let it aggregate. And they, but they haven't really unpacked it. But you unpack it, and then in that first class, I take a, a few different methodologies. So two are from my intelligence work, and one is from the Japanese practice of ikigai. And so modify that a little bit. So I take people's aggregate experience, and then I really try to drill down and give them perspective and say, what do you value? And it doesn't really matter what the answer is, but it matters to that individual. And I think that rarely do we act out of, out of congruence with our value stack, right? So I think that that also identifies a path of least resistance. So if you're going to evolve quickly in the age of automation, you need to heed your values and your aptitudes and go that direction because speed is of the essence. So we also tie together that methodology with SWAT, which is strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and and um, threats. And then also over to a methodology called PEST, which is political, economic, social, and technological. So you're getting the big picture, you understand your own values, you understand your strengths, and then you try to, to pivot accordingly and quickly in congruence with your value stack. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, it does. And it just made me think of, as you were listing off your jobs, like I've worked front desk at a hotel. I've been a cleaning crew at a hotel. I have worked at a magic carpet golf, uh, mini golf. I have worked in advertising and innovation. I had like, I worked at REI when I first moved to Denver. Like, it, yeah, well, you know, hey, I wanted to meet more outdoor people. But, but it's one of those things where I think how we shift with relevance, I think you touched on this. It's not necessarily about the job title, but it is about the skills that you learned and excelled in, in those jobs. So maybe you excelled, Evans, in um, problem solving in like when you were working as a, um, you said fry cook or something, right? So, yeah. yeah so like, cause the, that there's like, that's a high paced job, actually. My son worked in fast food. So like, I know like stuff happens behind the scenes. So, yeah. so I want people to be thinking about that because to your point earlier, we have to learn to shift constantly. Now it's part of the culture that we're now in, whether we like it or not, what, whatever industry job we're in, things are moving quickly and we have to figure out how to continue to shift with relevance. So I'm glad we got to dig into that. You're listening to conversations with everyday innovators on with Tamara Gondor podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. 
A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality, and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors, steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy's CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. I want to, I'm going to flip it for a second ask you about, um, this is two sides of the same coin. So I'm going to ask, maybe it's two answers, but I'm going to ask the question together. What's something you're proud of a win and, or what's a challenge that you have faced and how have you overcome it? Sure. So a, a recent challenge um, that, well, let's just start with the win. So a recent win, I'm very excited. I launched a, I launched a newsletter and a serialized um, business book on Substack. So I'm very pleased that I finally got that rolling. Congrats. So that, thank you. That felt like a, that felt like a solid win. Um, in terms of a challenge, it's an ongoing challenge tomorrow. It really is. Because I think that what we're having to deal with in terms of dealing with evolving in lockstep with a very changing world is to fight the existing inertia and almost conditioning that we have in terms of going back to we, we both being Gen Xers going back and saying what we have been been conditioned to believe is that you go to college, you, you do your four years, you get out, you get with the company, and you, you're loyal to the company, and the company's loyal to you, you do your time, you get your gold watch. Well, you and I have seen that unravel. Um, and, and so to me, but, but the belief is still prevalent out there. And so um, I had a student where he showed up and this was like the, the initial class, the, the class had been rolling in the organization for a while, but this gentleman showed up for a new cohort that was going to move forward. And he just, he was visibly upset when he showed up, but he signed up for the class. And so we got to him and it was introductions and everything. And he was just like, I'm 53 years old. I'm a software developer. Why was I not told this sooner? Uh, this completely goes against all the grain uh, that I've that I've ever been exposed to. And I said, Well, you know, hey, I, I got here as quick as I could, and it's never too late. 
and we can always work on developing these skills that'll help you to to adapt as opposed to I, I love the Bruce Lee quote about being like water and that's really what this is about it's about being like water being formless in effect but of course you have some form but you you're actually able to adapt evolve and move in accordance with the challenges we're faced so it's an ongoing challenge and I try to overcome it by gently educating people and trying to uh, trying to provide comfort, but also trying to provide that encouragement for them to move outside of their comfort zone, so that they can they can continue to adapt and deal with what we're with what we're looking at. So you said something that I in there that I think is really important, and I just want to dig in for a, a couple more minutes here, and that is um, inertia. I think that we often hmm, how do I say this we we confuse our lack of desire to change uh, with fear. And those things do exist. Don't get me wrong. They're there. But fear, like uh, unwillingness to be uncomfortable. I think inertia is one of the biggest things you have to fight. And I always laugh because I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, I'm like a body in motion stays in motion, a body at rest stays at rest. So the minute I sit on the couch, like I am like to get me up, that initial energy is so hard. But if I'm in motion, right, I'm fine. And the same is true, I think, with change in any way of like, if what I'm doing is not causing me pain, it may not be good, but if that job, that work, the outcome of my tasks isn't causing me pain, inertia sets in and I'm not going to change. And so just talk a little more about that because I think we forget about the power of inertia and we, we focus on fear, totally matters, but there's this other force over here that's really keeping us still. Yeah. I think, I think that in effect we we really we really start to atrophy with with more and more. I hate to use this term because it, it might seem overplay or over overstated, but I think that we become a little bit addicted to opulence, and so we we live in a very very um, in, in a time of of ample abundance, and so I think we become addicted to that, and I think that. It, it softens us, and I think that it gets us to a place where it's easy to feel comfortable and to not move toward any kind of innovation. Um, one, of the, one of the other challenges I face with Fast Fulcrum is that it's a lot of work. It really is. And it's definitely taking you outside of your comfort zone. But uh, I've had students come to me and say, gosh, I wish I'd been exposed to this before I spent $80,000 on an MBA. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the inertia piece, I think that there's this mindset that we have to get into, which is the, the world at large is calling for us to evolve. It's a catalyst. We shouldn't look at it as a cataclysm. Look at it as a catalyst. I like that. And then steer into that space. That's our true call to get off the, get off the, the, the metaphoric sofa and to, and to, and to evolve. Um, Hope I answer your question. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is, and we'll just keep with the sofa analogy for a minute, is that first, it, it's like going for a run. That first step is the hardest, and then it gets easier. And I think with change of any kind or innovation, when you're trying to push to kind of new places, we that first, the energy that we have to take and the uncomfortable feeling we have in the beginning doesn't last. It's, it's important to remember it's temporary, and it gets, if not easier, we get stronger. One of the two happens. Um, so I'm glad we had this conversation about that because inertia is one of the things I've thought a lot about recently because I think in 
in many aspects and in work too. And in fact, I'll tell you, um, you know, before 2020, all my work, all 90% of my work was live. And I really wanted to go online. I really wanted to create this toolbox. I really wanted to scale, right? And I had this IQE, this incredible assessment. So that was part of my work, but I wanted that to be more global, right? I want all these things. But the success and the draw of what I was already doing that was working kept me there. Yeah. And then 2020 happened and the rug got pulled off, pulled out, and all that business went away. And I was forced to do what I'd wanted to do all along, but had never gotten to it. Well, you know what? Sometimes there's some silver linings there. Yeah. So. Well, I think it, I think disruption can be good. I think it just depends Absolutely. on how you how you fight back against disruption, I guess. Absolutely. Um, what does it mean to you to be an everyday innovator or to drive innovation on a daily basis? And, and maybe not let that inertia sink in. Sure. I try to find connections between things. It's kind of like I get a little bit of a rush out of it. And I've, I've, all, yeah, I've always been that way. And so um, I try to find connection. And, and one of the things I try to do, back to the inertia piece, is I've, I've done this for, for ages, uh, since the 80s. But try to identify a topic or a subject about which I know little to nothing. And then just spend 10 minutes per day diving into that subject. How much time do we waste, you know, just, just numb throwing on our phone. So it's just like, take 10 minutes of focus, read that and, or watch a video, whatever, you know, however you choose to digest content. But at the end of it, in a year, just at 10 minutes a day, you have focused and delved into something for 60 hours. And so that's pretty substantial. That cuts both ways because, you know, we can also waste 10 minutes a day, but, but we'll focus on the good stuff. So you're, you're really tunneling in and learning something new. For example, I, I chose this year to really do that with investing and so to really understand uh, the, all the principles behind investing because I got it at a high level, but I wanted to begin to dive down. 10 minutes a day, totally worth it. So that's one way I try to innovate. And then also, I'm always looking for connections. So as I'm doing research out online, looking at, at various aspects that affect automation, uh, of course, um, artificial intelligence, which is driving that, and then also looking back at different ways that people can evolve, I'm always looking for connective threads so I can pull things together. That's what I would encourage people to I, do. I love it. And here's the cool thing about Evans, what you're saying that I think we can all do. So I challenge us all to spend 10 minutes a day learning about something, pick something and do it for at least a month, right? You don't do it for the year, but at least a month, learn about it. What I love about that is, because I'm a big fan of doing that too. And the minute I see something that I don't understand or don't know, I'm like down the rabbit hole, of course, right? right. And you yeah. can argue tomorrow, how much time can you possibly waste learning about mountain biking? You're never going to mountain bike. I don't know. But here's what I'll say. That 10 minutes, the connections that I make into my back to my world tend to be pretty powerful later on. So even if it feels like I'm wasting time because it's not something maybe that I'm really going to focus on later, right? I'm not going to go be an expert mountain biker. Um, and I did the same with investing, by the way, because I really wanted to build wealth and understand like, how does investing really work? Not just the high level. And that was different because I was like, I want to do this. But both of those things, whether it was mountain biking or investing has trickled out into ideas and solutions in other parts of my work in life that I would have never had had I not had this little weird nugget of information rolling around in my head. Yep. That's awesome. There's a, uh... There's a book I use in one of my classes. It's called The Medici Effect by Franz Johansson. I used to use it, I used to use it in college uh, with one of the graduate 
courses I, uh, I taught, but then I pinched it and moved forward and folded it into my own curriculum. But one of the anecdotes was talking about one of the, the principals at Bain and how she reads over a hundred books per year that have nothing to do with business. So on top of her usual stack, I'm sure, she, she also reads hundred books that have nothing to do with business because she's trying to find these connections and finding ways to become enriched outside of the scope of, of business literature. And so I, th I think we can all do that. I love the, I love the mountain biking piece. Uh, well, I learned some interesting things about how they, the kind of language that they have, they have this kind of very common language that wouldn't make sense to anyone outside of the community. And that got me to, when I first dug into mountain biking, into a really clever marketing campaign when I was working in this consulting firm with all the like consulting lingo that we have. So I'll give you an example because it's my favorite one. So, and we sent these out in marketing to all our clients and they loved it and it got us more business. But we sent out this little uh, uh, cartoon with confer vultures. And confer vultures are the people who wait for your meeting to end. And the minute you walk out that door and all the leftover bagels and like fruit, and whatever, they like come flying in like vultures, and like pick up all the food. And yeah. it's usually us junior people who have no money. Like when I was junior, that was totally me. Comfortable. <laughs> so, but that digging into mountain biking and BMX, like all that got me to this idea in our world of like, hey, we have language. It'd be funny to send that to people who get it, who are in the know. So you just never know what you're going to come up with. Um, as an instinctual inquisitive, what advice do you have for everyday innovators of all types who are looking out there to do what you've done? And I'm just going to say, continue to shift with relevance. I think that's a really a powerful point there. Sure. I think that first and foremost, um, whether it's at an organizational level or if it's at an individual level, I think you have to identify your values. And sometimes that's really hard because it's one of those things, kind of like the skills that we've accumulated over time that we were talking about earlier, we just kind of take them in stride and we kind of take them for granted. I, don't, I think that sometimes it really helps to unpack what actually matters to you. And then also recognize that you need to evolve along the lines of things that help you to, to feed your existing value stack or to augment it. And I think sometimes that's, that's a hard self uh self a, a reflective look it's kind of hard for us to do sometimes but i think that it's essential that we do that identify what you care about what do you value and then start to start to evolve to feed that make it stronger i try to leverage curiosity as like a targeting mechanism so you identify your value stack and then you choose things about which to be curious and then start to tuck in kind of like with the 10 minutes 10 minutes per day but it all goes together. I think it's very easy in the values to put values on paper that sound really good. Um, be fearless, be detail oriented and organized. That's one I always fight with because it's not me. And Thanks. yeah, so like I keep putting it as a value, but it's not, let's be real. But but it's it's easy to do that or to to put ones down that you think you want, but maybe don't really reflect you. So I'm, I'm curious back to you, if you could share some of your top values um, and why, they, not, maybe not why they matter to you, but perhaps also how you live them on a daily basis. Sure. So freedom is absolutely critical. Uh, I think, and, and it feeds into some of the other the other values. So I, I also think of like two separate stacks, right? So there's like concepts and attributes that we truly value. And then there are, things or relationships that we truly value. So I'm, I'm a 
first and foremost, I am a, a hardcore family man. All my spare time I spend with my family. We really enjoy each other's company. Um, watching geek movies or playing board games. I just love that. That feeds me. But I have to have freedom in order to be able to enjoy those things. And so those those values are cross-complementary there. But then also I'm I am a geek. Uh, I'm, I've uh, I've been a geek my whole life. I'm totally into learning, and so it's uh, just something I've I've always tried to do. So the pursuit of knowledge and the enhancement of knowledge, it's and it's not from a, a place of oh I like to be good at a pub quiz or I like to, you know, uh, be the smartest person in the room because if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find another room. But um, it's about it's about just that that I think sense of accomplishment of learning things. So, so those are my values. Um, I encourage people to try to, to really take a hard look at themselves and say, what do I truly value? Hey, look, if you, if you really, if you, and I say this, to, I've said this to my, my classes in the past. Uh, if you're really, if you value money, okay, just be honest about it. And, but, you know, realize that there are things behind the money that you may be really going after. For example, freedom. So it's uh, it's important, I think, to really dissect this and, and really get to the middle of the Russian doll and uh, understand what really drives you. The Russian doll. I love it. I haven't had a stacking doll in forever. Nesting doll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I love that. It's interesting. So one of mine is freedom. It's my top one, actually. It probably drives everything. And for me, it's freedom of time, freedom of options, freedom of choice. And because of that, in reality, I value money a lot. But But I value that because that gives me the freedom that I it's- want. Yeah. But the other way that translates for me, and I, I just, I'm sharing this because I want people out there thinking about what Evans is saying about figuring out your values. For me, it means that, you know, being in a very structured corporate environment, while I'm great as a partner to corporate, corporate, right? I'm not good as, I'm a horrible employee because that structure by design pulls away the freedom that I need. Now for somebody else, they may value teamwork and structure. They may even value the structure. And that's awesome. I don't think one is better or worse. For me, I had to live in a way that freedom was part of how I work. Yes. It's a bespoke process. It really is. Because you're going to have, you're going to have different people who have a different value stack and a different approach to things and different strengths, different weaknesses. And you just kind of have to holistically knit all that together and figure out, okay, now that I have this picture, how best can I move forward toward the things that I value and the goals that I've defined? And I think once you set those, Evans, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. I find that when I'm out of alignment with them, I really feel it. Like I know when I'm not living in my values and working in my values in some way. Totally agree. Same. So I can't believe we're out of time. My last question for you is more personal. What's one thing we'd be surprised to learn about you? A hobby, passion, experience? <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, that laugh. <laughs> I was just saying this to my wife. I said, I said, oh, I, I have to divulge something very personal. And uh, anybody who doesn't know me um, would probably be surprised to learn. I am a hardcore Doctor Who fan. Have been since 1980. Hardcore. And so uh, a lot of folks... They'd never guess that I was that was harboring that passion, but uh, but I've, I've loved that since 1980. It's uh, it's kind of in my DNA now. So, which is your favorite Doctor Who? Number four, Tom Baker. Mm, interesting. Okay. Best of the best. 
Yeah, yeah. So my my I have two teenage boys who love it, and we've been watching it for a long, long time now. David Tennant's still my favorite, of course, but everybody else in this house, we are divided. He's a David Tennant fan. So they're all Tennant. Who's coming back to the show, by the way? Oh well, I haven't seen the new one with the woman Doctor Who because that was a big shift. That was a big change. I was so proud of them that I saw. So I need to start in those series and watch those. I haven't gotten there yet. Anyway, and I once made a TARDIS cake for one of my kids. So we're all about Doctor Who. I get it. I get it. Love it. Love it. Well, Evans, thank you so much for joining me. I really, I think we covered some really, really insightful things around shifting your relevancy, about your values, just all of it. So thank you for sharing your insight and your wisdom with us. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.